0: I bring nearly 40 years of experience covering IndyCar and NASCAR, working for such media brands as NBCSports.com, SI.com, ESPN Sports Ticker, Sports Illustrated, AutoWeek, and SpeedSport. So let's drop the green flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. We are honored to be joined by this week's guest, It's Lone Star JR, three-time Indianapolis 500 winner, Johnny Rutherford. He began his racing career in 1959 and started his first Indianapolis 500 in 1963. But during the 1970s and into the 1980s, Lone Star JR was a shining star in IndyCar racing, especially at the Indianapolis 500. His time with McLaren Racing and Teddy Mayer produced some incredible results. He won the Indianapolis 500 pole in 1973 and scored his first Indianapolis 500 victory in 1974, starting from the 25th position. That remains the furthest in the field any Indy 500 winner has started that has gone on to win the race. He started on the pole and won his second Indianapolis 500 in 1976 in what remains the shortest Indianapolis 500 in history. The field completed 102 laps of the 200-lap race that was stopped for rain. A second heavy rainstorm prevented resumption of the race, but it was an official race after 101 laps. McLaren left IndyCar Racing after 1979, and Rutherford joined Jim Hall Racing in 1980. He drove the famed Penzoil Yellow Submarine to a dominant victory in the 1980 Indianapolis 500, starting from the pole. It was a car that revolutionized IndyCar racing by utilizing ground effects to keep the car sucked to the track through the corners, eliminating the need to slow down to maintain control. The 1980 season was the best of Rutherford's careers. He won five IndyCar races, including the Indianapolis 500 and the Kart Championship. The final IndyCar win of Rutherford's career came in the 1986 Michigan 500. His last Indianapolis 500 start was in 1988, and he officially retired from racing in 1994. Rutherford's incredible career included 30 wins, three Indy 500 victories, and 23 poles. He also has one NASCAR Cup Series victory in one of the two qualifying races for the 1963 Daytona 500, driving for the famed Smokey Eunuch. I caught up with Rutherford over the weekend at his Fort Worth, Texas home, and conducted a lively, in-depth interview with this racing great. Part one of the interview includes how Rutherford got his start in racing, his NASCAR win in 1963, and his three Indianapolis 500 wins during his outstanding career. Part two of Lone Star JR will be next week. So here is part one of Lone Star JR with the great Johnny Rutherford on this week's edition of Pit Pass Indy. Joining us now on Pit Pass Indy, it's a real honor to be joined by one of the all-time greats of the Indianapolis 500 and of IndyCar Racing. It's Lone Star JR, Johnny Rutherford. Johnny, you're a three-time Indianapolis 500-winning driver. You won a NASCAR Cup Series race back before it was even known as the Cup Series. You really represented racing back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now as you reflect back on your career, what really jumps out at what Lone Star JR meant to racing?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, that, that's a tough one because uh, there were a lot of guys contributing <laughs> back in my time and, uh, it, uh, you know, just being there, I guess, uh, something I always wanted to do. My dad took me to a midget car race in the forties, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma and midget car racing was just starting to grow and get big. And, uh, I was hooked. I, I wanted to be a race car driver and I studied everything and, and, uh, you know, uh, I was what, eight, nine years old at that time. And, and, uh, I, you know, I just loved to go to the races and and watch the midgets run and, and, uh, they were big and, and, you know, I just, uh, grew up with racing, you know, watching it, listening to it, uh, listening to the 500 every year with my, my dad. And, uh, Anyway, it was, you know, a typical story. I think we've all, if you, if you, you know, talk to all the guys, they would have the same thing. They, they just wanted to drive race cars and, and loved it when you made it to the big time. And, uh, I started my racing career in 1959 at the devil's bowl speedway in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, ran for a season and a half and then left with McElreath to go up into the Midwest and see if we could make it there. And Jimmy had a sprint car ride and I was looking for one and, uh, I, I, I found one and, uh, they, uh, they questioned me about my age and I was 22. So uh, anyway, it was, uh, you know, you just march along taking advantage of, uh, opportunities and making things happen and i started in 59 and made the indianapolis 500 in uh 63 so it was i i gained a lot and uh it it made my time in racing great especially to make the 500 but i was a sprint car racer and i raced in imca from from 60 to uh 62 and uh got the ride with Smokey Unix stock car in, in Daytona for the fifth annual Daytona 500. And it was, of course, the car was a skyrocket. You know, it was, it was very good. He had had done a special engine and, and, uh, there were only two of them. I think Rex White had the other engine. And, uh, anyway, uh, it was, you know, just, just march along. It was, it was, uh, I look back on it and I, I think, wow, you know, it was something.
0: Even though that you're known as Lone Star Jr. from Fort Worth, Texas, it all began for you in Kansas. What brought you to Fort Worth? Well, I was
1: born in Coffeeville, Kansas, a small town on the uh, Oklahoma and Kansas border. And, uh, I was just a kid growing up in Coffeyville and, and my dad was in the, in the air force. And, uh, moved around a lot. I went to 13 different schools during my time. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, just that. And then of course getting race, catching racing every, every now and then. And then, uh, I was in a hot rod club in, in here in Fort Worth in river Oaks, Texas, actually where I live now. And, uh, I was at a meeting one night, and one of the guys says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to have to leave a little early. I've got to help my brother put the engine in his dirt track car. Well, that set me straight up in my chair, and I said, Dirt track car? He says, Yeah, they run every Friday night. over Devil's Bowl Speedway in Dallas. Well, I went out the next day, and he let me drive the car, and that hooked me even even deeper. And uh, I looked around and found a, a, a car. That had been a race car at one time, but it was a different type. It's a 32 Chevrolet Coupe, and uh, that's what the favorite was at at the Devil's Bowl. And I bought that car and took it back, and the the Hot Rod Club boys at the Idlers Club helped me build up my first race car, and that's how I got started.
0: So your father was in the Air Force. Did you serve any time in the military? Because I know in the 1950s there were a lot of IndyCar drivers and NASCAR drivers that had some type of service commitment during that era.
1: Yes. One of our football coaches was the commandant of the 3rd 105 Howitzer Battery, United States Marine Corps Reserve. And he, he got a bunch of us to come out, and I joined in 55, and it uh, was six years in the Marine Corps Reserve and wouldn't take for it. It was the greatest opportunity, uh, you know, and, and learning the military and being a Marine, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, and I, I still hold that dear.
0: And it really seems like the rebirth of the Indianapolis 500 in 1946 when Tony Holman and Wilbur Shaw were able to revive the Indianapolis 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it really had a strong connection of World War II veterans that became top IndyCar mechanics, car builders, drivers. It was a unique era because it really seemed like after fighting in battle, whether it be in Europe or in the South Pacific, that racing was a way for those men to get their adrenaline rush?
1: I think so. There were a lot of uh, uh, veterans from World War II that were driving race cars uh, then and racing and, and uh, indie cars and sprint cars and midgets and uh, whatever. And it was, it was something to... Uh, to be a part of that, it, it really was because the, the time was great. I always tell people when they ask me when, when I started racing, I tell them I started racing when racing was dangerous and sex was safe.
0: 1962 you ran your first USAC race was actually in Indianapolis it was at the fairgrounds it was a USAC champ car series race 100 lapper you were driving for Bell Lions trucking and a uh, team owner Fred Sclavy. uh what was the story behind that well
1: event? I uh McElreath, of course is my uh, uh mentor and he he Kind of looked out for me uh, during our time in, in IMCA and and uh, uh, watched out for me and, and helped me with rides. And Jimmy called me and said, "There's a pretty good dirt car that's available. Uh, why don't you call and and see see if you can get it?" And he gave me the number, and it was uh, Buster Warkey, uh, who was the chief mechanic on the car. And uh, I called and. They gave me the ride, uh, but Buster told me that the engine had been run pretty hard at ducoin and and uh, he had not had a chance to, to do it. But I made the race, and uh, it was my first time, gosh, on a mile track. I'd run a mile in IMCA, but uh, uh, anyway, it was my first opportunity, and I was hooked because then USAC, once you joined— You couldn't run anything else. You couldn't go run the outlaw races anywhere. Some guys did, but they got caught, and then they would, you know, you'd get uh, time down. So anyway, it was uh, my first opportunity, and I I took it. And uh, it was during that time that uh, uh, Smokey, uh, I had a friend in in Dallas who had a Pontiac dealership, and uh, he called me and said, you think you'd like to run the Daytona 500? And I said, no, "We sure. Why not?" I'd never run a late model stock car in my life before, and uh, so I went over and he called, made a phone call, and I had no, no idea who the who was the, the builder or the owner of the car. And uh, he, he was talking to him, and he said, "Yeah, he's right here. I'll put him on." Handed me the phone and said, "Here, talk to Smoky Eunuch." And I nearly dropped the phone. You know, I, <clears throat> I couldn't believe it and, uh, talked to Smokey and he says, how soon can you be here? And I said, I'll be there tomorrow. And, uh, got to Smokey's, uh, garage and the best damn garage in town as he, as he titled it and, uh, met him and he was running the engine on the dyno. And he said, he told the guys, he says, uh, fit him in the car, get him, you know, get him all fitted up. And, uh, we went out the track the next day and unloaded in, in the garage, and uh, he said, you're going to need somebody to talk to to answer, answer questions for you about this place. He said, uh, I'll be right back, and he, he went away, and he came back with two guys in tow, and he said, here, meet Fireball Roberts and Joe Weatherly, which were two of the top guys, and... uh uh, in racing and, and, uh, little Joe was having a lot of trouble with his car and, uh, fireball helped me quite a bit, told me things about the track and, and how I like to watch, you know, crosswind and turn two and so on and so forth. And anyway, I, uh, went out and, and practiced in the car and, and we were quick, you know, it, it set fast times. Junior Johnson was in another, in, uh, in the other car. Uh, for uh, Ray Fox, and he and I were battling for the for the pole position or the quick time, and of course uh, Smokey wasn't going to let that happen, and uh, we did set a new track record at Daytona and a new world record for stock cars on a closed course, and uh, I you know I just couldn't believe everything that was that was happening coming down, and uh, ran the hundred mile qualifying race and I won that. And, uh, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I'm the, the, uh, uh, one of the youngest drivers and, and I won my first race in NASCAR, but I'm the only driver in the history of NASCAR that won the race in car number 13. And so I, I hold that there with, with my NASCAR uh, background. And, uh, I, uh, Smokey said, you want to stay down here and run with me? and said, Smokey, I really want to go to Indianapolis. And he he was a real fan of Indianapolis and had built two or three cars that he ran there. And uh, he understood that. And so uh, as a result of of what I did there, I got a call from an owner and uh, offered me a ride. And uh, I struggled with that car for a while. Buster Warkey was the chief mechanic. And and it was a Watson Roadster, and uh, anyway, we we struggled, and I couldn't, I just couldn't get the thing up. It didn't, it didn't feel right. And uh, uh, Buster told me, go look for, a, a, you know, another ride. See if you can take something out and get a comparison. And I went down the line, and Eddie Kostanek had a, had one of the last uh, leader card Roadsters he'd bought. And uh, I went down, and and uh, Lloyd Ruby had just tested the car that day. And uh, Lloyd came over was was a dear friend of mine from from Texas and Wichita Falls. And anyway, Lloyd, he said, uh, "This thing's good." He says, "When you run it down in the corner and you feel it bump the curb, which was what you looked for," he said, "Get after it; it'll take it." So I did and, uh, ran it, I think practiced in it for six laps, pulled in and, uh, got out of the car and the guys pushed it away. And I thought, well, I must not have done very good. And, uh, Eddie said, no, we're going back for fuel. You're going to qualify this thing. So <laughs> I had a, a different ride, which kind of, uh, made Buster mad, but that was, uh, the way it was. And I made the race, uh, in that car and, uh it was something to make 500 i uh, uh of course we uh, you got you once you once you got your driver's test over you had the three stripes on the back of the car the tape they put on it to designate that uh, you were a rookie to the to everybody else and you got to take those off and i went out to practice and uh i was boy i felt great i could use the whole racetrack. track you couldn't during your test so I went out and was, was running around the track, and and Roger Ward went by me on the back stretch and I thought, what in, what in the hell am I doing here? You know, nearly pulled my goggles off. But anyway, that was my introduction to the Indianapolis 500.
0: Just to back up a few years to your first race uh, in an IndyCar car. It was the 1962 Hoosier 100 at the Indiana State Fairgrounds, 100 laps on dirt. And I'm just going to run down the names uh, of the drivers in the field that day. The winner was Parnelli Jones. He defeated Don Branson. Third was Jim McElreath, then Roger McCluskey, then Roger Ward, then Bobby Marshman, then Chuck Holsey, then Jim Herdebees. You go down the list of these drivers, uh, you know, you had Lloyd Ruby, Ralph Liguori, uh Bobby Grimm. Uh, you finished 15th that day, one position ahead of a guy named A.J. Foyt, who was the defending uh, USAC national champion at that time and the defending Indianapolis 500 winner from 1961. And driver in the field uh, was Elmer George, Tony George's father, who was married to Tony Holman's daughter, Mary. You look at that lineup, that's some pretty big names to be running in a uh, USAC Champ Car series race back uh, on on dirt at the Indiana State Fairgrounds, but it's really a testament to what that era was like.
1: You know, it was it was good, but but they were all really nice to me. Roger Ward helped me a lot at Indianapolis and uh uh you know, he won it twice and he was with the top team and uh I felt like I was, I was there, you know, I had made, I had made it to the, to the top of the mountains. They were all so good and helped so much. You know, a lot of the drivers were, uh, uh, getting up in age and, and, uh, Jim Rathman, uh, we can became good friends. And it was, it was, I just felt like I had made, made it to there and, and it just got, better and better and, uh, got better rides and things happened. And at Indianapolis, uh, when I started, it was 10 years before I ever made it to the position of, of being able to do good, you know, really have a, a good run at Indy. And, uh, uh, I'd always told my wife, Betty, that if we ever, uh, got with a team that wanted to race as, as bad as I did, we'd be winners. And the situation came around uh, after that uh, ninth or tenth year. I had driven for for Herb Porter, who was had a great knowledge of of Indy cars, and uh, I raced for him for a couple of years. And his in the first Chevrolet powered dirt car, and we we had some success. But it was it was a situation. Herb called me into his garage, and he said. Teddy Mayer from McLaren is looking for a driver, and he said, uh, "I have told him he needs to hire you and so I talked to Teddy on the phone and we met the next morning in Indianapolis uh, at a at a holiday inn restaurant and had breakfast and I got hired and i thought wow it was it was really, really something to be with them. Tyler Alexander brought the car to the speedway, I think in January or February, it was kind of cold. But anyway, first time I had driven the car, and we had a lot of trouble with the thing. It it just, we did, you know, Tyler did everything he could to it to try to stop it from pushing the front end. And uh, it was, you know, you you think about it and, and everything, and it was, you know, I thought, well, we'll see. So they sent the car back to England to the designer, Gordon Copy. And uh, so anyway, we ran the old car the first couple of races, and at Trenton, first one of the first races, I spun the car out, and and, and uh, I was t- I thought, boy, that'll be the end of me. And uh, Tyler, I just couldn't po- apologize to the guys enough. And Tyler kind of set our tone. So he was right in front of me, and he turned and put both hands on uh, hand on each shoulder, and looked me square in the face. He says. J.R., if if you don't keep score, we won't either, and that kind of sets the tone. The car came back uh, for Indianapolis, and and uh, we went out to practice. I couldn't believe the difference in the car. A few years later, I had a chance to talk to Gordon and I said, "What did what did you do to the car when they sent it back to England?" He said, "I redesigned the the rear." section of the car and he said and it worked because i went out and within a few laps we were running 200 miles an hour around the speedway couldn't believe it the car was just stuck it was so good and uh we practiced and and qualified did not you know the speedway is so different it changes by the hour almost and qualifying for the pole uh, we did go out and set a new track record and, and uh, ran 198 miles an hour for our four lap average. And uh, uh, started on the pole, was we were running good and and had a had an exhaust header break. And for a turbocharged engine, that that just kills it. And so came in, the guys struggled and changed the header and and uh, went back out and, and finished ninth in the 500 that year.
0: You're talking about 1973, correct?
1: Uh, yes, in 73, and uh, came back the next year, and, and of course the car was the same, and it was, it was good, 74, qualifying. We had a new chief steward, Tom Benford, and he changed his rules a little bit. We got the Piston during practice that morning. The guys went back to the shop, changed the engine in 58 minutes, and we're back out in line. And, the, and one of the officials said, no, you're going to have to go to the back of the line. And I said, well, you know, why? Because that's the rules, you know. And so we argued with, with Benford. Uh, Al Unser and I were in the same boat. He had an engine problem and, and the practice. And so anyway, Floyd and I were, were dueling for the pole position. And uh, we were running about 190. Then they changed the, the turbocharger a little bit. And the, I qualified, and when I qualified, put me in pole in the, in the ninth row, 25th starting spot. And, and you know, that was, that was pretty tough. And so we got ready and uh, rolled out, started the race. And when they dropped the green flag, I just passed guys as I came to them. The car was that good, and and uh, twelve laps. I think I was running third, and then we caught Floyd, and we and I raced together for several laps. And uh, I knew if I kept the pressure on him, and every time he looked in his mirror, that I was right there on his tail, that uh, we would be okay. And uh, sure enough, uh, I knew I could run him out a right rear tire, or or his engine might. Uh, give up. And sure enough, it started leaking oil. And uh, I had to back off of him. It was covering me up with oil. And so anyway, uh, we went on then. He had was black flagged for what he was leaking oil and uh, got to the front and uh, won my first Indianapolis 500. And uh, what a thrill. You know, I mean, it was, wow, that's what we came here to do. But uh, it was McLaren and the crew, Tyler Alexander and, and all of the guys, you know, that was, that was it. it. You know, we finished second the next year in 75 and when the rains came and we made a pit stop and, and Bobby Unser stayed out and, uh, he won the race. I finished second, but, uh, you know, it was just, wow. You know, how long has this been going on? <laughs>
0: In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. Or, for household rentals, download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. Well, before we get to your other Indy 500 victories, I want to back up a little bit. One is, you were the first to win the Indy 500 for the McLaren team. A McLaren car had actually won the Indy 572 with Mark Donahue driving for Team Penske. How well did you get to know Bruce McLaren before he was killed? I didn't. That was the one thing
1: about being with McLaren that I uh, disliked so much was the fact that that he was killed in 1970 at Goodwood testing his Can-Am car. And uh, I'd always thought, gosh, you know, uh, even today I I wish I knew Bruce uh, when he was at the speedway before he was a great guy, you know, everybody, uh, loved him and he was a good race driver and a good engineer. That was one thing that I wish that, that he had still been alive to see us win the 500.
0: What was the secret to his brilliance? Cause when he was killed, he was still very young. I believe he was 30, 32 when he was killed, but what was the secret to Bruce McLaren's brilliance? He was just a good race driver. He had the opportunity to have
1: guys like Tyler Alexander and and uh, Teddy Mayer and everybody that was that was uh, with McLaren at the time. Still, you know, till till my end with them. But uh, I drove seven years for McLaren, and uh, Bruce's thoughts and things were still there. You know, Tyler uh knew and had been with Bruce when he was successful in the uh, in the Can Am series and uh when they came to the Speedway they struggled for the first two or three years they were there and Bruce you know was killed and, and it was uh it was a tribute to them that they were able to keep on going in Bruce's memory and make things work you know tyler was was great to work for he we developed a situation where i knew what he was saying to me and he knew what i was telling him about the car and it was that was the success that we had uh, at mclaren
0: Now i want to back up a few more years to when you went flying out of the ballpark at eldora broke both arms if you could describe that crash, was it in a midget or a sprint car race?
1: It was in a sprint car race. Uh, we had a good sprint car, and I won my first USAC sprint car race in that in the car. It was the one that Mary George had had built for her team, and and uh, several McCluskey had driven the car, and and uh, it was a good car, and we I won my first. USAC Sprint Car Race Center at Eldora, but we went there in, uh, oh, 66 is when I sailed out of the park, but uh, Wally Muskowski had built another car, a new one, and I was to drive it, and he put Mario Andretti in the car that I had won the championship in, and uh, so we we were racing, and the car was terrible. You know, you could give it a pitch at the start-finish line, and it wouldn't get sidebite till it hit the wall in the first turn. You <laughs> know, it was, it wasn't very good at all. He made a lot of serious changes in it, and uh, we were racing. And Wally came out and, and told me to move up. Mario was on my tail, chasing me, and uh, he had that my good car. And uh, I moved up, thinking that I, you know, we'd do something, and and. That let Mario by. Well, he went by, and we raced for a couple of laps. We w- went into the first turn, and and it was the spring race at, at Eldora, and there were always rocks uh, that worked to the surface. And uh, uh, evidently, he picked up a rock or a or a clod. I had just put my flip shield back. We had open face helmets back then, and I put my flip shield back because it got some, you know, got a little dirty. And, uh, Mario picked up the rock and it hit me just virtually square between the eyes. I've got the goggles, I still have the goggles and the, and the broken lens in the goggle. And, and, uh, I relaxed on the throttle and that's a, that's a bad thing to do, uh, on a rough racetrack. And I hooked a rut and it, uh, set, you know, the right rear end and then it jumped over and hit the left rear and that, Tumbled the car and it went over and hit the top of the guardrail and sailed. Oh gosh, twenty feet in the air over the over the guardrail, out of the racetrack, going in for in, violent in for in run. And uh, I've been told by the new owner of the speedway that that picture is on the back of the of the uh, wall in in there. And he said it's the most famous picture ever made at Eldora. But anyway. Uh, went out of the track, came down, broke both arms, had a severe concussion, and was out of uh, racing for that year.
0: What do you remember when you were in the air? Did, did you do you remember every bit of that crash? Some people say in crashes like that, speed tends to slow down, and you rem- you remember everything.
1: No, it was so violent, uh, going you know end for end, and I had a uh, had the. Slight concussion, I'm sure, for the rock hitting me. Went up and out of the racetrack, and uh, thank goodness it landed right side up. But uh, anyway, and I came down. I was stretched out of the car. The picture that was, that was uh, taken of it was so up in the air, and I was stretched out. The thing that really made me mad is, is the next day in the hospital, uh, Betty had the newspaper, and it had that picture on there. And the, and the guy that wrote the, the line on it was Rutherford waves to the crowd as he goes out of the racetrack. <laughs> and anyway, uh, it was one of those things that just, uh, you know, took a little time out and, and, uh, I had to get myself back in shape and everything. And as soon as I could, I was, I was back in a race car and just you know people say don't didn't that kind of make you not want to drive anymore said, oh no i couldn't wait to get back in a race car and and uh, and do it and i i stayed in sprint cars racing and i had won the the championship the the uh, championship in the sprint car division in uh what was it 65 and of course that accident happened in 66 but uh that particular day at the the Eldora Speedway uh, because I was the champion was Johnny Rutherford Day well boy it it really was my day
0: (laughs) but also you came up with one of the greatest lines I've ever heard about having both arms in your cast uh, in in, in cast and when you really needed to go to the bathroom if you could tell that line because to this day it's still one of the best lines I've ever heard (laughs) it was situation where when I got
1: back to the Speedway, of course, everybody came around, Branson and Ward and everybody to you know, to see think, you know, good that you're back and, and you'll heal up and everything will be good. And I was standing with a group of them and I I said, boy, I really need to go to the head. And it was like pulling the pin on a hand grenade and dropping it. I, I was the only one standing there. <laughs> they all They all split.
0: <laughs> but didn't you say you really find out who your friends are when you need to go to the bathroom and both arms are in cast?
1: Yeah, that that's that is true. That that is true. Uh but it was, you know, you learn you learn how to live with it. And so I did. And it was uh you know, it says, What did you do when you had to go to the bathroom? I said, Betty <laughs>
0: Yeah. You've brought us up to 1975, finishing second in that monsoon of a finish of the Indianapolis 500 when Bobby Unser basically hydroplaned his way to the checkered flag that day in a rain shortened race. Your second victory in 1976 was also rain shortened and I believe it remains the shortest Indianapolis 500 of all time. What are your recollections about that? I, I know if you bring that race up to AJ Foyt, he gets pretty upset because he thinks he was the winner. Yeah.
1: <laughs> AJ always thought he was the winner. AJ and I have been dear friends for, for all these years and we still talk quite a bit. I'll call him or he'll call me. And, uh, we discuss the, what's going on in racing now. And, uh, 76, we were leading the race in the McLaren, and uh, it started raining, and they stopped the race at at 102 laps, and a race that goes one lap over the the prescribed distance, uh, and they have to call it, they'll call it off. Well, they, they worked for three hours to get the track dry and we were all ready in our cars ready for tony to restart the engines and uh it started raining again and it just bottom fell out well it would take three hours to get the track ready and that would be nearly dark and so i won the shortest indy 500 in history so i've I've done a lot you know set track records and and uh, won the thing a couple of times by then, and it was uh, you know, it was it was, it was just something, you know, part of my career. And and uh, we we uh, they developed a uh, tried to develop their M24, which wasn't quite the same as the M16. The M16 was the best flat bottom car that was ever designed, it was it was so good, and uh, I drove the m24 and when in uh 79 mclaren had to had to get out of indy car racing marlboro was their sponsor in in the formula one series and uh, emerson Fittipaldi was driving and we he won the world title when i won the first indy 500 and so uh they had to, to bow out and and i was uh, again searching for a car that you know a good car to drive and tyler called jim hall at mclaren he said because jim and and al Unser, who had driven the car when it was new he he said you need to hire brotherford if you know to drive your car well jim called me and and we made a deal and and uh, i was going to drive the chaparral the next time and it, it's a that's a whole other story because we, Al had won the last race of the season at Phoenix with the car, and uh, he and Jim had a falling out. He he wanted some changes made, and Jim wouldn't wouldn't do it. So Al went went away, and he hired me, and and we went to test the car at the Phoenix and uh, in the spring, and uh, got in the car, and they set it up just like Al had driven it to win the last race there i couldn't drive the thing it was so wobbly and everything fortunately jim had hired uh steve robey to to come with me the mechanic and uh, we struggled for half a day at phoenix and i just could not you know like the way the car was and so Steve asked uh, Jim if he could do some things. Well, Jim, he, he, Steve knew that I liked a stiff car, stiff springs down on the ground, using all of the ground effects that uh, that that thing would give us. And before the day was over, we were I I think under the track record by quite a bit. And uh, uh, it was it was something I you know it was a whole new realm. You know the car was. Uh, The car was good because of the ground effects, and I got, after Steve did his work and got things kind of like I like it, uh, we went out, and we were two seconds under the track record, and and I could drive the car. The only time I had to lift the car, be left out of the throttle, was going into the first turn because it was tighter than the third and fourth turn, and uh, I would take it into the first turn, and just cracked the throttle a little bit to transfer weight to the right front to help me turn it. And then it was flat-footed all the way through the dogleg and around three and four and back around down to turn one again. I couldn't believe it. The thing got so much side bite and so much downforce that going through the the third and fourth turn flat out, it made you grunt, you know. because it was it was stuck so tight and we had a, a great season I won my my third Indy 500 in that car and and uh, won the national championship national championship driver award and it was you know it was good but after that uh ran for two or three three years I guess with Jim and everybody else started catching up with the ground effects and Jim decided he was you know that was it he was he was out i started looking for a team to replace mclaren and jim hall and that was impossible you know that was just virtually uh the end of my indie car career i was uh gosh the last race i ran at the speedway was was in 88 and uh drove for uh uh, the drag racer. Kenny Bernstein. Kenny Bernstein in a Buick. And a, the Buick was, when they were fresh, they were really strong. They were good. And, uh, but the more you ran them, the shorter the push rods got. And, and so they kind of lost, you know, lost a little power, but it was a struggle. And, uh, it just, you know, after that, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was tough to, to put anything together, and so it, it led up to my retirement in, uh, what was it, 94, I think, and uh, in, in 88, I was 50 years old, and so it was a situation where my age and, and uh, unable to find uh, the right ingredients for the team, that was it. I just, you know, decided I would retire
0: well I wanted to back up a little bit just to clarify to the listeners in 1976 when you won your second Indianapolis 500 Indianapolis 500 is a 200 lap race halfway or an official halfway's one, lap 100 an official race would be lap 101 the race went 102 laps so chances are we're not going to see a shorter Indianapolis 500 than that what was it like to walk into Victory Lane that day rather than have your car driven into Victory Lane?
1: Oh, it was it was something. It was another first, you know, shortest race, first driver to walk into Victory Lane. It's you know to win it. Can't beat that. That's what we went there for, and uh, so it was. It was uh, just a, a you know little bit of a. You know, I wish it had gone all the way, and I know Foyt, Foyt would too because he he thought he had his problem solved, and uh, it would be another one for him, but uh, it wasn't. And, and we we were awarded the race because of the rain, and it was, you know, it was okay. It was another win, and any time you can win it, however you win it, is uh, good.
0: So you got two Indy 500 wins in a matter of three attempts from 74 to 76. In 77, once again, driving for Bruce McLaren in the first National City Traveler's Checks car. You finish last in the 33-car field with Gearbox after just 12 laps. When you put so much emphasis and your heart, your soul, your time, your energy, everything into the Indianapolis 500 for it to end that quickly, how do you describe to a race fan just how you feel when this is the day you've been waiting on all year, and then all of a sudden the bottom just drops out?
1: Well, it, it's obviously very disappointing. You know, it was a, a simple thing. You know that that uh, happens. The drive belt on the uh, all of the systems, the oil pressure, and everything in the in the car broke, or it it failed and uh anyway it was uh it was sad you know we had won it already won it 3 times and uh it might have been my fourth win but it was just short lived and uh you know that's the way it was and and so we had to accept that but uh yes it was it was disappointing for sure because we had a, a great car and uh it was that old lady, I call that the Speedway, the old lady. And that old lady, she, you know, I could have had been the first three-time winner had I won in 75. I'd won in, in 74, 75, and then 76. And uh, she just wasn't going to let that happen. And it, that was it.
0: The first to go three in a row. In 78 and 79, he finished out of the top 10 at Indianapolis. However, in 1979... You swept both races of a doubleheader at what was then known as Atlanta International Raceway. Now it's Atlanta Motor Speedway, completely reconfigured to the way it is uh, now. But what was important about that is that was the last time McLaren won an IndyCar race before Pato Award drove to victory at Texas Motor Speedway this past May. So, what do you think of all the great history that McLaren had in IndyCar in the 1970s? And you had the—you uh, were the last driver to win for McLaren for 40 years. <laughs>
1: That's the way it goes, you know. It's uh, just—you know—one of those things. And of course, we swept the thing at Atlanta. And I—I liked running high bank racetracks. I—I I enjoyed Michigan world records there and, and won races there. And, and, uh, at, you know, I won, what I went, I won my first Indy car race in Atlanta in and, in and 1965, 250 mile race. And, uh, I was in Watson's, uh, car that Ward missed the race at in Indianapolis with. And, uh, Anyway, I think it was my, my sprint car driving the car. It was, it was twitchy, but uh, we just hung in there and uh, won, my, won the race, and it was uh, my first uh, IndyCar race, and uh, A.J. Watson was the crew chief. And a funny story about that, <clears throat> he had uh, talked to Bob Wilkie, the owner of the team who was in Europe at the time, on business, and uh, he said that uh, he had, had talked to uh, Bob and said, w- uh, you know, who do I put in the, who are you going he asked AJ, who's he going to put in the car? And he said, I think I'll put Rutherford in the car. And Bob said, oh, I don't know if he's got enough experience, you know, look at, you know, maybe Chuck Holtz or somebody that's driven for us before. And so anyway, AJ put me in the car and we won the race. And Bob called after the race and said, What happened? He said, Well, we won. He said, You did. Who'd you have in the car? <laughs> he said, Rutherford. <laughs> and that was that was a new deal. And I was had been virtually hired by Bob Wilkie and Leader Card and, and Watson to drive for them. And then, of course, the thing, the thing happened in '66, broke arms. And, and uh, just, yeah, that was it. You know, it never never got back with with them i was scheduled to drive for them but uh, that thing happened in in april at, at eldora and that was it
0: you talked about famous photos from that crash at eldora there was also a famous photo when you won the 1980 indianapolis 500 when a rookie driver tim Richmond, wrote on your side pods uh, back from his stopped car, after you had won the race, you picked him up, asked him if he needed a lift. You drove him down pit lane as you went down in the victory lane. What was the story behind that?
1: Well, we always made an extra lap at speed after, after the uh, after the checkered flag, just in case scoring screwed up. And uh, anyway, I was coming around turn four, and it, and I, you know, the fans were all waving and cheering and everything. And he was standing there looking at his car, lo- like if he had a gun he'd shoot it, or he was going to kick it. And I, I saw him, you know, before I got to him. And I got on the brakes and and put it in neutral and 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 slid up there by him. And he came over and he said, "You won the race." I said, "I did." He congratulated me, shook my hand, and he said, "I said you want to ride back to the pits?" It was a long way down, you know the the middle of the pits where Victor Lane was. And uh, he said, where do I get? I said, Set on the side pod and hold the roll bar. So he climbed on there. And, of course, there were several pictures of that, me taking him down. And and uh, he had a lot of talent. I, I was always disappointed that he, he went to NASCAR and didn't stay in car because he, he might could have won the race. I think he had enough talent he could have. And I've always told people, I wish he had stayed and uh, run at Indianapolis. And if he'd won, I could tell people I showed him the way to victory lane.
0: Your last victory came in 1986. I want to bring up another victory that you had the year before that, in 1985, in saint Air, Quebec. And if you could tell the story about what makes that maybe one of your most unique victories.
1: Well, it was one we had to go to court to win. Yes, uh, number one, uh, we were on the. There had been a, a crash in the first turn, and that little that it was a small track, seven tenths of a mile, uh, but it was very fast. And uh, anyway, the yellow was out, and we were we were dodging the oil and everything in turn one, and I I knew it was it was nearly over. And so I was leading the thing and we came around, uh, after they cleared the cars off of the track and came around and, uh, there was, there had been a yellow and a, I believe it was a yellow and then a white, yeah, white, white, which yellow meant you and were the, on the
0: final lap.
1: Yes. One more lap, white, white flag and, and yellow flag. And that means it's over. Yes. Because the, the the one lap left is 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 over in the yellow, and so uh, Pancho Carter was behind me, and for some reason, they waved the green flag and on the on the starter stand, and that was from up top somewhere. They said, "Let's finish this on the green," and so they threw it, and, and it couldn't happen, you know. I stood on it, and Pancho went by me and and beat me to the line. And uh, uh, I knew if we sailed into turn one, there'd be a hell of a crash because there was oil everywhere. And uh, they gave the race to uh, to Pancho, and uh, Johnny Caples, my crew chief, we we said no, we're, we we're not going to do that. So we went to court over that, and had. Uh, uh, Roger Ward and, and uh, Leo Mel from Goodyear and the officials. And as soon as I said, you know, that I had received the, the white flag and the yellow flag, and, and that was it. Roger Ward just burst out loud and said, yeah, the race was over. You won. And so they gave us the race, and, and Pancho, I think, still has the trophy. He said he threw it away, but I doubt it. But anyway... We were awarded the race, and that was, that was uh, my first race with Capels and the team that he was um, working for. I drove three years for them, and we did go to Michigan, uh, the 500-mile race in Michigan, and I won that. It was uh, a race that we just kind of took it easy, taking it easy, and, and all of the leaders and everybody, that had been charging, at, you know, uh, earlier had crashed or spun or something. And we were leading it on the yellow, and uh, the track was just a two or three laps to go to, to win. And uh, I, you know, was was ready, got the green flag, and I stood on it. And we were running lap, those last two or three laps at 217 miles an hour. And uh, won the thing, and uh, that was that was another great race that I, I enjoyed, the way it all worked out, the way I was thinking, and we won it. And so it was, you know, one of my uh, better 500s.
0: And one thing back to the San Air race, they actually threw the green flag coming out of turn four, heading to the checkered flag, which I don't know any rules of racing where that would apply. Uh, Well, the fact that they had thrown the the yellow and the white flag. The yellow and the white means the race is over. You cannot pass on on that lap. That's right. But they actually attempted to throw the green heading to the checkered flag coming out of turn four, which, as I said, that would have definitely been the definition of mayhem. Yep. Uh, I was at the Speedway for a lot of your great victories and a lot of your great accomplishments, and I was also there in 1994 when you officially retired and got to take your final victory lap. And I know how emotional you were that day, that when the realization comes to a race driver that it's over, how hard is that? Well, it's
1: one of the hardest things in your career. You know, the fact that uh, time's up, you know all of all of the guys uh Cal Unser, uh bobby Unser, every all of those guys had retired you know that year and uh so I told betty i said hey, you know what am I doing here uh, all of the guys in my gang are retired, and so uh I told her i was gonna gonna retire and uh I left my coach and went over to the garage area and went over to Foyt's, and i said a hey, j have you got a car that I can drive around here and retire? He didn't hesitate. He turned around and told his his crew chief, said, is that car ready to run? And uh, he said, yes. He said, get it ready. Rutherford's going to retire in it. And it was the same car that he had retired in. And so I was kind of proud of that fact. But uh, he got it ready, and and, uh, I went out and, and made laps around the track and I told him, I said, if I can run fast enough to qualify, what do you think? He said, do it. And I I knew better. I didn't want to do that, you know. And uh, I had driven Foyt's cars before a couple of times. And uh, I, they were set up the way I would like for it to be, you know. And so uh, I think I could have. But I, that was it. I made my two laps around the track. And and came in and, and Tom Carnegie interviewed me and that was it. You know, it was over. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, the Indy Racing League was getting started and uh, Tony George hired me, one of the first three hires of the IRL, and uh, they put me in the pace car and I drove the pace car for a lot of years at all of the car races and enjoyed that very much.
0: And that puts a checkered flag on this edition of Pit Pass Indy. As we noted earlier, part two with Johnny Rutherford will be featured on next week's podcast. The subject of that episode is how Rutherford survived one of the most dangerous eras of IndyCar racing and his personal thoughts on some of the great drivers that he raced against. We want to thank racing legend Johnny Rutherford for joining us on today's podcast. Along with loyal listeners like you, our guests help make Pit Pass Indy your path to victory lane for all things IndyCar. Pit Pass Indy continues to race forward in the offseason with more in-depth interviews featuring the biggest names in the NTT IndyCar series. So please be sure to continue to tune into Pit Pass Indy. For more IndyCar coverage, follow me at Twitter at Bruce Martin, uppercase B, uppercase M, underscore 500. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team, executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin, and final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Learn more at evergreenpodcast.com. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall.